Brothers, good morning. Good to see you. Sorry to interrupt your sweet fellowship, but it's great to be together this morning. My name's Robbie. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're jumping in late, I was with, uh, uh, with you guys some weeks ago, but I'm still here, so it's good to be back. Um, and the donuts came. We were a little short on donuts, but they arrived, so if you missed those on the way in, go get some more now. I won't be offended. Uh, it's really good to be together, and I just wanted to remind you guys that next week is our last Tuesday morning men's Bible study of the semester. And so please come next week. It's a great encouragement to me. I know the semesters get full and we get tired, and um, it's just sweet to see you continuing to come to the end. And I know just from talking to some of you how rich the fellowship and time in the Word is. So thank you. It's an encouragement to me that you're here. And so I'm going to go ahead and get us moving um, towards our passage this morning and hope to give you guys good time in your group. So if you guys are still gathering something, that's great. I'm going to pray and kick us off. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for giving us your grace. Thank you for opening our eyes to see Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And we pray today that uh, you would open our eyes again. If there's anyone um, who is yet to, to trust Christ, that you would do the work in our hearts, that we might have the Son as our passage says this morning. So thank you for your word. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for fellowship with brothers. And uh, we pray that this morning you would do your work among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. This morning we're continuing in 1 John. We're in chapter 5 now. That's the last chapter of this letter. And we are going to read the first 12 verses. So you can follow along on your handout or in your Bible. If you have a Bible handy, I will be referencing some other places today, particularly the Gospel of John, and I'll say more about that in a little bit. This is 1 John 5, starting in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is God's word for us this morning. May He bless it to our hearing. So we're getting back into 1 John this morning after probably too much time away and too much turkey. So we may have lost the thread. You may have kind of forgotten where we were, but fortunately we have two weeks really to land this First John plane, and I'm teaching this week, and Paul's teaching next week, and because of the way John writes, we really have two weeks to, to draw conclusions. You, you may have noticed John has a way of coming back 
to the same themes and the same topics again and again. Uh, once I worked with a pastor who would always say almost every single message, repetition is the key to learning. <laughs> and he said it so much that it started to get on my nerves, but I guess he was right because obviously I learned it and I'm saying it today. And if repetition is the key to learning, then John is a good teacher. We probably won't cover anything that you've never heard today, but we will restate some very important truths about the Christian life. And my hope is that we'll begin to think about how to apply this great letter to our lives. So as we start, I want to share a little bit of my process in preparing this lesson. Uh, maybe that's helpful as you think about how you read the word, because studying New Testament letters can be challenging, because a, a letter is a genre that's not always as easy to work through as a proverb or a psalm or more of a narrative passage. So just like any letter, I try to find themes and big ideas and repeated words that help me organize the author's thoughts and understand the flow of the argument. You may have heard all that and be like, I don't know how that relates together. So when we read God's word, the first time sometimes leaves us feeling a little bit hazy. <laughs> but the more we dig, the more we uncover, the more the spirit shines his light. And what I notice as I look more closely at the text, if you look with me, verse one, everyone who believes, everyone who loves. Verse four, everyone who has been born of God. Verse 5, he poses a question, who is it, dot, 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 the one who believes. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God, whoever does not believe God. Verse 12, whoever has the Son, whoever does not have the Son. And so when you pull those out, you start to hear this repetition of everyone who, or whoever believes, or whoever has, and that for me becomes an organizing principle. You can see it in our title this morning, the one who believes. So here's the point. I think John wants us to see all that is different, all that is new for everyone who believes in Jesus. He's saying these things are true for everyone who believes in him. And by implication, they're not true for everyone who does not believe in Jesus. And as we'll see, every point he makes really is significant. So if you look at the discussion questions, they basically form my outline. That's our path through the text. And let's walk through it. The first thing I want us to see is that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has new life. Or as John says it in verse 1, they have been born of God. This is a foundational statement because John is really talking about what has to happen in our lives if we're ever going to believe that Jesus is the Christ. If we're going to have a relationship with Jesus, we must first be born of God. And as we go this morning, I will frequently ref refer to the Gospel of John because it struck me this week that so much of what John says in his letter, you could say, has its origin in the Gospel. You could see the same thing if you read Peter. You could see the same thing if you read James. Uh, so rather than hearing too many of my words, I hope I can share more of God's own words this morning. And I hope that we'll see the beauty and the unity of God's Word. So when we read John, we can see that he's absorbed so much the life and teaching of Jesus in profound ways that when he starts writing this letter, you can just sort of see it overflowing everywhere. And if we're talking about being born of God, the passage that comes to mind is John 3. And if you remember, this is the moment when the Pharisee Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, probably to have a hearing alone, but maybe because he doesn't want everyone to know he wants to talk to Jesus. And he wants to ask some questions, I imagine, but before he barely opens his mouth, Jesus sort of takes this down a road he didn't expect. John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Kind of buttering him up, maybe. 
Jesus answered him, which doesn't seem to follow, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So Jesus tells this religious leader that he really should understand this. This is like theology 101. We cannot see the kingdom of God. We cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again or born from above or born of the Spirit. And Jesus makes it clear that something supernatural must take place in the life of a person, something as mysterious and earth-shaking as natural birth is. You probably don't remember that moment, but you didn't have much to do with being born. You didn't choose your parents, you didn't choose the timing, you didn't choose the hospital, you didn't choose the doctor. There were other forces at work in bringing you into the world. But you're here this morning, so you certainly were born, and as soon as you were, you began experiencing all the wonders of this life. So what is John saying in 1 John 5, 1? Whoever truly believes that Jesus is the Christ, whoever trusts in him with his whole heart and leans not on his own understanding, has experienced this spiritual birth. And that tells us so much about God's role and our role in salvation. What we said about our natural birth could be said about our spiritual birth as well. You didn't choose your heavenly father. Jesus actually says in John 15, 16, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You didn't choose the timing. You didn't choose the location. There were other forces at work in bringing you into the kingdom. But if you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus, you certainly were born of God. And as soon as you were, you began experiencing all the wonders of this new life. If you've yet to believe in Jesus, this may sound as strange to you as it did to Nicodemus, but the Lord is saying this clearly in John, 1 John, and elsewhere in his word, the presence of an abiding faith reveals something mysterious and beautiful has happened. By God's grace, you've been born again. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So have you experienced being born of God? Do you praise God for his gracious work in pursuing you and bringing you to life? And does it humble you when you realize that he chose you and you can't really figure out why? (laughs) Everyone who believes in Jesus has new life. That's the first thing. The second thing I want us to see is that the one who believes in Jesus has new love. Obviously, a repeated theme for John. We've seen his emphasis on love so much in chapter 4 and elsewhere, but he can't get enough of talking about God's love and our love. Verse 1, second half, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So in this first verse, we see this close connection again between faith and love. Like two sides of the same coin in the New Testament, Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Ephesians 1, 15, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. 1 Peter 1, 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Faith and love, faith and love, love and faith. They're so interconnected that New Testament authors struggle to bring one of them to the party (laughs) without inviting the other to come along too. 
So faith looks to Jesus and finds him beautiful and believable. And when he opens the eyes of our heart to see who he is and what he's done, we can't help but love him, value him, worship him, treasure him. So it makes sense then that we would love the Father, obviously, but John presses further and gives us another metaphor. The one who believes loves the Father and whoever has been born of the Father. So we get the birth thing again, but you see in verse 1 we have the Father and those born of Him. In verse 2 we have the children of God, so we have a family metaphor. Father, those born of the Father, children of God, we should love one another. We've been born of God, yes, and a birth implies a family. We're now children of our Heavenly Father. We have an older brother in Jesus, and we have many brothers and sisters in this family of God. So if we've been born into God's family, we must love our family members. Ann and I have two sons. I've mentioned before, Will and John. And when John was born in 2016, Will was three and a half. So that's the difference in their ages. And you can imagine there was a lot of talk with a young Will, two to three and a half, uh, about having a baby brother for about nine months leading up to November 17th. So he just had a birthday. Uh, we're hoping so much that Will would love his baby brother and there wouldn't be jealousy and competition, but you don't know. But the Lord really has answered those prayers. I have video and pictures from the moment, you know, the second day of his life when Anne's parents brought Will to the hospital to meet John. And Will walked over to him with so much joy and wonder in his eyes. And John was sleeping in one of those tubs, you know, the little clear plastic tub. And Will walked over there and kind of peered up over and stood next to him and just looked at him with so much love in his eyes and started talking to him. And I, I imagine if we'd introduced Will to any other baby in that season of life, he wouldn't have cared a rip. He wouldn't have even been interested. But this wasn't any other baby. This was his brother. This was family. And so for the last seven years, we've seen the joy and the labor of love that is brother living and loving with brother. And I contrast that with a sad story that I just heard the other day where a mother shared with me just her heartbreak over her relationship with her child. And the child has cut off all communications, filled with bitterness and anger. And I hurt with this woman because we all know family is different Sometimes our friendships with other people break down, we go our separate ways, and that's sad. But when this happens with family, it's more painful. Because your mom or dad, your sister or brother, uh, your son or daughter, they're always family. So we need to realize that as children of God, other believers aren't just friends or acquaintances, they're actually family. And that may be strange for many of us because most of us have been conditioned to hear family and think blood relatives. But I think the New Testament really challenges us to hear family and also think church. It's, it's not to diminish our responsibilities to our immediate families. It's to raise up the wonder of being part of God's family. And if you're not convinced, just think about Mark 3, 32 and 33. A crowd comes to Jesus and says, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And I think they kind of thought Jesus was a little crazy. Let's try to like slow down this ministry thing. And you know how Jesus replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So we know there's redefining of the family in our culture, but in a good way, God redefines the boundaries of family in the kingdom of God. So how well are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? 
I know it's really a struggle sometimes, but that's family, right? And if we want to grow in our love for our brothers and sisters, Jesus has given us what we need. Think of John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, he says, so have I loved you. And he says, abide in my love. And as we do that, we hear his commandment in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So do people that know that we are following Jesus because of the way we love one another. And remember, Jesus prayed that, that we would be one so that the world might believe in him. I think we're tasting that a little bit on these Tuesday mornings, but the Lord wants to continue to grow that in our church family. The third thing I want us to see is that the one who believes in Jesus has a new obedience. Look at verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. We saw this theme of obedience at the beginning of 1 John 2, where it talks about whoever believes in him must walk as he did. But now John comes back to it. It's worth asking again, why are loving God and obeying his word so related? And the easiest answer is whenever we love someone, we want to please them, whether that's a parent, a spouse, a friend, a child. I've always loved Ephesians 5.10 because Paul says simply, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Or in another translation, find out what pleases the Lord. <laughs> Why? Because if you love the Lord, don't you want to do what pleases Him? But I think obedience becomes a bad word because we try to make it the engine instead of, you know, a car that follows behind or maybe even the caboose. When we put it this way, we begin to understand how other religions and approaches to life work. The engine is you. It's your effort. It's your obedience. Live like this. Do your best to please God and then hope that in the end he will accept you and bless you. Anyone living like that, whether you'd admit it or not? This obviously becomes a burden because we can never be sure if we've done enough. And those of us who think too highly of ourselves get proud. <laughs> and those of us who know we don't measure up feel condemned. But the biggest problem in that is that we've put ourselves at the center. We've made ourselves the engine. When obedience is the engine, you are on the tracks of a self-salvation project. And that is a road really to nowhere, nowhere good. So may I remind you of a better way, of God's way. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It starts with his love and our relationship of love with him. Just like the Ten Commandments. You know, I, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I loved you. I rescued you. Now here's how to live in this relationship. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Last time we heard that we love because he first loved us. One obvious way we express our love for God is by obeying him, keeping his word. And the promise Jesus attaches to this is really remarkable. The Father and Son will come to us and make their home with us. And I don't know if there's a better picture of what abiding means. Is the Father and Son coming to us, making their home with us, and us making our home in God. So as, as branches, we really obey the vine by staying connected. And from that union come all kinds of life and love flow into and out of us. 
Let me give you an Old Testament reminder of the beauty of obedience. This is Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, as Moses and the Lord sort of wrap up what they're saying to the people. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. The Lord didn't desire to burden his people. (laughs) He desired to bless them. And we should ask ourselves, has obeying the Lord ever truly been a burden? Hasn't it been a greater burden to disobey? Hasn't sin brought bigger burdens into our lives? But thanks be to God. Think about the gospel. Jesus lived the perfect, obedient life that the Father required. And because of this, Jesus actually deserved those blessings outlined in Deuteronomy 30. But in an act of truly amazing grace, on the cross, Jesus took the curses that we deserved so that the blessings that he deserved could flow to us who are united to him by faith. So if we're in Christ, the Lord sees us as if we had perfectly obeyed the law. We're justified, righteous in his sight. And he gives us his Holy Spirit and writes his law on our hearts that we might obey him in a new way, not externally, but from the heart, not to try to earn his love and his acceptance, but because we already have his love and acceptance. So the one who believes has a new obedience. Fourth thing I want us to see is that the one who believes has new victory. Look at 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you remember, we heard language like this before in 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you're from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So how do we understand this concept of victory or overcoming the world? The biggest key, I think, is seeing that John uses different verb forms to describe it. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. That's more past tense. There's a sense in which the victory, the overcoming, has already happened. But then he also says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? That's present tense. So how do we put this together? Start with the past tense. The one who believes has already overcome the world, John says. And what is the victory that has overcome the world? This is fascinating because if I were answering the question, I would say something about Jesus, right? I would talk about his life, his death, his resurrection. But John says the victory is, drumroll, our faith. (laughs) Why? I think because our faith unites us with Jesus. We're united with him in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. He lived in our place. He died in our place. He was raised in our place. He has already overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil, you could say, in our place. And if we are in him, we share in his victory. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't struggle. Every man in here can testify to how hard the struggle 
can still be. Paul says in Romans 8, however, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we don't always feel like more than conquerors. But that doesn't change the reality that we are united with him because we are. What John says here is really like his version of nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. End of Romans 8, if you want to go see all the things that could mess that up, and he says nothing can mess that up. So we know that Jesus has already won the war, the fighting rages on, but the outcome is secure, and we are with him, and it changes everything when we bring that into our daily struggle to overcome the world. Our present tense overcoming the world is rooted in Jesus' past tense overcoming the world. Because he has overcome, he can give us strength to experience that, not perfectly, but truly in our daily lives. It will never be perfect in this life, but it is real, and we can walk in it. I thought I'd remember the Titans this week. Do you guys remember this movie? (laughs) Uh, Do you remember Ronnie Bass, the left-handed quarterback? Sunshine. (laughs) <laughs> he moved to Virginia from California. You may remember his military father showing up. This is my son, Ronnie Bass. You know, he plays quarterback. And they're like, nope, we've got a quarterback already. Um, and the team makes fun of him because he has this long California hair. And the captain, Gary, calls him a fruitcake. And they didn't realize who was on their team, okay? So in one of their biggest games, the starting quarterback gets injured. And Ronnie Bass comes in and gathers the huddle. It's really funny because Denzel Washington tells the story. You know, I had 12 kids when I was growing up, 12 brothers and sisters, and they were all looking to me, you know. And then the assistant coach is like, 12? He goes, no, eight. Um, yeah, 12 sounded better. So he pumps Ronnie up. Ronnie goes in, and he goes, he gets the huddle. What's the matter? Haven't you ever seen a football injury before, you wimps? And he says, let's go. Show some life in those legs. I got it. It's going to be all right. So he injects confidence into this worried team. And they, they call the play, and he says to his linemen, let the defensive linemen through. <laughs> he says, I'll take care of the rest. And so uh, it's the same defender who just injured the other quarterback. And so they break the huddle, they snap the ball, and, and Sunshine throws this beautiful left-handed pass. Then immediately he ducks down because this guy's coming, and he basically like undercuts him, like tabletops him, or however you want to call it. And so <laughs> that guy just gets laid out, lands awkwardly. He's like lying in pain on the ground. The opposing coach wants the ref to call unnecessary roughness. (laughs) And then the ref says, on the quarterback, coach, um, in disbelief. And so Ronnie Bass just kind of stands there staring down the defender on the ground. And it's like he's saying, don't mess with my family. (laughs) And the whole atmosphere changes. One of his coaches says, we got ourselves a football player, you know. And uh, one of the teammates says, that's a bad white boy. And so the na-na-na-na music starts playing, hey, hey, goodbye, and the Titans start playing with a new confidence, and and what's the point? They had this game-changing player just sitting on the sideline. (laughs) They didn't realize who was on their team. They were coming up short. Things weren't looking good, but as soon as he took charge, the whole conflict changed. It's really an imperfect analogy. They always are because Jesus is so much greater than a talented quarterback, but maybe you see the point. Like, we can see in our lives how Jesus sometimes seems like he's just basically sitting on the sideline. It's like we don't know who's on our team or actually that we are on his side. But the Lord wants us to see that he's already won the great conflict. Victory's past tense. We're not striving for it. We're living from it. And he's with us as we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil even today. So will we do life with him today 
Will we abide in him and let him give us wisdom and strength for every moment? Because if we will, we'll begin to experience overcoming the world in real time. Listen to John 16, 33. Jesus says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you know how awesome that statement is? Jesus is saying, I've overcome the world before he even went to the cross. <laughs> That's the captain of our team. That's the one on our side. So the fifth and last thing I want us to see is that the one who believes has a new testimony. John talks about two things and one person who testify about Jesus Christ. The first two are the water and the blood. The third is the Holy Spirit. Much ink has been spilled on the water and the blood, as you might imagine, because it seems kind of vague and cryptic. We don't have time to really chase all that, which I'm sure you're glad with that. But let me say a couple things. There's an early tradition, commentators who think the water and the blood refer to what flowed from Jesus' side after he died on the cross and was pierced and you had water and blood flow. For a number of reasons, this doesn't seem very convincing to other people. So it's helpful to understand that from the first century on, there were challenges to the incarnation and the deity of Christ. There were false teachers who argued that Jesus was just a normal person who was then filled with the Spirit at his baptism, but then the Spirit left him before he went to the cross. And that's probably a teaching based on the cross is offensive and we don't know what to do with it. And so false teachers were trying to perhaps make it more palatable somehow. This can't happen to one who was God. That background information may help us understand why John emphasizes this testimony. Because if we see it this way, the water and the blood provide testimony that reinforces what's so important to him from the beginning of the gospel to this letter, the incarnation and deity of the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. In this interpretation, the water refers to the water of Jesus' baptism, that moment that inaugurated his, his mission and affirmed his identity as the beloved son of the Father. Remember the words the Father speaks over him in his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And the blood refers to Jesus' sacrificial death which was not a failure or a mistake, but actually the heart of his mission to come and die to save his people. So you can see that John wants to hold the water and the blood together when he says, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. In other words, Jesus' whole life and ministry and sacrifice are an integrated whole, and no one can break this testimony apart and make him less than the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And the Jewish law was clear that a case must be built upon the testimony of witnesses. So we have the water and the blood, but even more, we have the Holy Spirit testifying. The Spirit is supreme witness because he is the truth, John says, and he offers the testimony of God himself. Why does this matter? Well, there's a whole discipline in Christian theology called apologetics, which focuses on making a defense for the faith. Maybe you're into that. And there are different branches and approaches to apologetics. And I don't really have a bad word to say about apologetics, but we sometimes give more weight to this discipline than it can carry. So we can marshal our archaeological evidence and our philosophical arguments and our historical facts. And it can all be very impressive, but this testimony in and of itself cannot cause a dead heart to beat for Jesus. Certainly, God uses apologetics. He might have used it in your life as he brought you to himself. But there is no greater testimony to the truth and reality of Christianity than the testimony of the Holy Spirit himself. 
Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God believes that because the Holy Spirit has testified and borne witness in the heart of that person and convinced and converted them to the rock-solid truth of the gospel. And this is good. (laughs) We feel the temptation to impress people and win people with our arguments, so it's good for us to remember that God alone can change a man's heart. And we need this reminder because it changes the way we pray and it changes the way we talk to people and it changes the way I teach. (laughs) Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling in my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why, Paul? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So how many of us really live like that and minister like that? If you were brilliant, eloquent like Paul, wouldn't you lean on those gifts? Well, apparently Paul did not because he didn't want people's faith to rest on his brilliance or his eloquence, on his testimony, we might say. He wanted people's faith to rest in the power of God, on the Spirit's testimony, we might add. So he says in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, this is how this is working out in real time. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Brothers, when we testify to others about Jesus Christ, how do we want it to come to them? Only in word or in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the water, the blood, and the Spirit are God's way of testifying that Jesus is who he says he is. And that's the greatest and the most powerful testimony. And John takes it one step further, so I will too, and then we'll we'll be finished. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The testimony about Jesus isn't just out there. If you believe in Jesus, it's actually in here. If you know him, that testimony is written in your own life, written on your own heart. And what's the essential core of that testimony? Verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's pretty straightforward. (laughs) The ultimate condition of eternal life is quite simple. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Do you have the son? Is Jesus Christ not just a savior, has he become your savior? If you have the son, you have life. And John is talking about eternal life. You'll have that life in the future, of course. But John actually says you have it now. (laughs) You're already experiencing the dawn, the, the first light of eternal life because you know his love, his joy, his peace. You are united even now with him. You are abiding even now in him. He is your God and you are his people, and he is with you. And that's really what eternal life is all about. Jesus said it himself in John 17, 3, when he prays, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
that by your grace, you do this work to cause us to be born again, to see Jesus, to love him, to follow him and obey him. Lord, to have this testimony, to have the son and to have life. And we pray this morning that you would help us to feel the beauty and the weight of these things. Lord, for those who may not know you, we pray that you would do a work in their hearts and help them um, that they might be born again and come to see Jesus and have life. Thank you for the time that we have to talk about your word. I pray that you help us to be all here and that you would help us to make the most of this opportunity. And we don't know how much time we have. We know there's been so many heartbreaking losses recently. And we just pray that as men who want to love you and love one another, that you would give us grace to, um, to be focused on you and on one another, um, that our lives might ultimately be about receiving your love and loving you and loving one another. Um, for us, but also for the world that's watching and needs so much to find life in the sun. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.